If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it with me to the book of Galatians that can be found on page 972 in the black Bibles that are around you. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21 is the passage from which I'll be making my comments and will guide us through our time in the Word this morning. This passage in Galatians chapter 2, I think it might be hard to overstate the case for its importance for our world, for your life, for this church, and for the whole Bible. Every time I get up to preach, I think that there's the task to make the listeners make sure that they understand like how important what I'm saying is, you know. And I'm tempted to do that now, to say, listen, this is like one of the most important paragraphs in the Bible, you know. And, and not try and like overstate it or whatever. I just think you all need to understand that if you want to make sense of Jesus, Christianity, Galatians 2, 15 through 21 is one of the most central passages for you to understand. If you would like to understand how to end racism and cars driving into protests and Charlottesville, Virginia atrocities, how do we end those things in the world? Galatians 2, 15 through 21 is a passage you should be listening to. It's relevant for yesterday's news. If you would like to understand why Christians and Catholics are not in agreement about the Bible and Jesus, and what's the divide that brings Protestant, Baptist, Presbyterian, Protestant Christians, and Catholics, what's that divide? Galatians 2, 15 through 21. Is, you see what I'm saying? Like This passage is pretty big. It's a big deal. It's the turning point of the book of Galatians, so if you want to understand what's the message of Galatians, well, then you need to understand this paragraph. I think I could go on, but I hope you're starting to understand that this paragraph is huge in its implications, in its impact for our life and our society and our church. So without further ado, let's just read the passage and start unpacking it. Galatians chapter 2, I'm going to actually start reading in verse 11 because that's going to really provide our context for what's going on. And as I mentioned, some of the racism and the ethnocentrism that we see here in verses 11 through 14 is addressing, is being addressed with verses 15 through 21. So let's start in verse 11. But when Cephas, who is, that's the name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, the Greek translations do not have um, quotation marks. My understanding is that he's still talking to Peter, and so the, the conversation continues. So he just said in verse 14, if you, Peter, 
you're a Jew, but you're living like a Gentile, meaning you're not obeying some of the Jewish laws and you're feeling free to, oh, I could be Jew or I could be Gentile. If you're doing that, how, how can you tell the Gentiles that they now need to be Jewish? That's hypocritical. But he doesn't stop there. I think the conversation continues to the end of the chapter. So listen to this little speech Paul gives to Peter. We ourselves, so we, Paul and Peter, we We are Jews by birth, and we are not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if... In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, then I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I hope just by reading it, you can start to see why I said this is one of the most important paragraphs in the Bible, in Galatians, and has massive implications for what it means to be a Christian and to end racism. That's the context of this chapter. Do you see in verses 11 through 14 that I read that you've got this one man who is looking down on the other people, Gentiles, and he's thinking that, well, they need to be like me. They need to be forced to eat my kosher dietary laws or be circumcised. And his response to Peter is to tell him the gospel of justification by faith, that if you understand the gospel, then you will understand that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. There is no difference between black and white. There is no difference between the different ethnicities, races, and peoples of the world. We are all the same. We are all guilty. So I think the best way to summarize this paragraph, this most important paragraph, is to just use the words of the paragraph itself and see the concluding thought. Look down at verse 21. I think if we use verse 21 as our guide, it'll help us throughout the rest of this time. So look at 21. It says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. There's three phrases here, and I want to turn all of them positively, and I want to make that the outline of my message this morning. So let's take the first statement. I do not nullify the grace of God, so instead let's uphold the grace of God. Let's embrace the grace of God. So point one of this message is embrace the grace of God. Preach it. Believe it. Uphold it. Do not nullify it. Don't cast it aside, but bring it near and close and dear to your heart. That's point number one. Point number two is the second phrase in a positive. In the negative, it says righteousness were through the law, but it's not. So, so we're going to flip it around. For if righteousness were through the law, we're going to embrace the grace of Jesus Christ, and we're going to say, because righteousness cannot come through works of the law. That's point number two. Embrace grace because you can't be righteous through the law. And finally, 
It says, then Christ died for no purpose, and we will conclude Christ died for an amazing, God-glorifying, earth-shattering, transforming purpose, or whatever adjective you want to put in there. He died for something, and we're going to unpack what that something is. So let's start first with embrace the grace found in the gospel And let's look back at verses 15 and 16 again where we see this idea. Verses 15 and 16, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Did you notice as I read that again that he's pretty much saying the same thing again and again? He repeats himself three times. He talks about justification by faith three times. And he talks about not through works of the law three times. So the one simple point that he's making here is, Peter, do you remember when you put your faith in Jesus? Do you know why you did that, Peter? It was because we both came to realize that we were sinners. Now, we were Jewish sinners. We were not Gentile sinners. We were both born Jewish. And so he makes the distinction. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth. We've been given privilege. We've been given God's Ten Commandments and the law. And we know who the one true God is, unlike these other Gentiles. Yet, verse 16, even though we have that privilege, we're not much better. Are we now righteous because we have God's law? Is the conclusion that because we have this privilege as Jews that we are now righteous above everybody else that's not a Jew? And the answer is no, 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 three times in a row. That's his point, Peter. Everybody's on an equal playing field. We're all condemned and guilty before God. Therefore, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. We were supposed to have an advantage. We were supposed to be righteous, but because of our sin, because of our rebellion, the rebellion that's not just in Jewish people, but in all people. The law wasn't the problem. We were the problem. And so that is why justification is all by God's grace. It is a gift. It can't be earned. It can't be worked. It can't be something you strive for and achieve can only be given because if God says, here's the laws, obey these laws, and you'll be righteous, we will fail. And the whole Old Testament is one large story telling us that narrative. Failure again and again. So we need to understand what this word justification is. Justification. It has been said that justification is a word that if you take it out of the Bible, the whole gospel falls apart. It's like a linchpin, you know, that holds together the truths of the gospel. Pull out justification and the whole gospel collapses. So we need to know what it is. John Stott said, no one has understood Christianity that does not understand this word. So how are you doing? Do you know this word? Do you understand it? And more importantly, do you not just have a textbook definition of justification? Do you understand the essence and heart of what this word means and are applying it to your life? So let's define it. 
not in some sort of theological, difficult way. Very simply, justification is the opposite of condemnation. What does it mean to be condemned? If you're standing before a judge and he condemns you guilty, guilty of the crime, you're condemned, sentenced. Justification is the opposite. Declared not guilty. It's that simple. Do you know that the Bible teaches that God is a judge and that he justifies ungodly people by declaring them not guilty? That is what this whole passage is about. This is what Paul is arguing that Peter has already put his faith in and says, now if you understand this, Peter, you'll realize what what kind of a hypocrite you are. You're not a follower of Jesus and accepted because you were circumcised. You're not a follower of Jesus because you're so good at obeying kosher laws. You're a follower of Jesus because God has declared you not guilty. So do you... Today, as you sit here, realize that no matter how good you think you are, you will stand before God condemned if you do not have Jesus Christ as your advocate, as your lawyer, as your defense attorney, as the one who's going before the judge and saying, no, I have a case to make. You could could legitimately be a really good moral person sitting here today. I don't want to even doubt that. You could be like really good. Like, better than me, better than any of our elders. Doesn't matter. Really good is not good enough. If God is the ultimate standard of holiness, are you holy like God is perfectly holy? It's like being late for something. I'm sure many of you are always prompt and on time. You never come late to church, never go late to anything, right? So, have you ever been late to something? I remember being in uh, sports and I was always penalized for being late to practice. And so I remember being ingrained as a young kid like Westerners, we got to be on time and it's not good to be late. Well, if you've ever been late to something like the bus at a bus stop or late to a plane, like just missed your flight, You will know that it will do no good to boast if you are two minutes late and somebody comes about 10 minutes later and they were 12 minutes late and say, yeah, well, I was only two minutes late. Do you see how foolish that looks? Late is late. If you miss the bus, you miss the bus. If it's by 30 seconds or two hours, you're late. So you're either holy like God perfectly righteous or you're not boasting in our good deeds and our holiness well I'm really a pretty good person is a bit idiotic in comparison to the holy perfect righteousness of our creator so whether you're a Gentile sinner or a Jewish sinner, whether you were born in a Christian family or a non-Christian family, whether you had great privilege of great morals and upbringing, we all are in this room equal on the same playing field. Not just in that we are image bearers of God, yes, that's one truth, but secondarily we are all sinners before God and have distorted that image And the good news is that in Galatians 4, if you just turn one page over, I would assume, Galatians 4, 4 through 7, Jesus was not late. 
Jesus was on time. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. How does this work? How does it work that God sends Jesus on time so that even though we are falling way short, we can now be justified? Imagine one of my children missing their curfew. They are late, and they're told, be home at 11. Now, they're not old enough to have curfew yet, so this is not a real story. So imagine that in their teen years, they're given the privilege to leave and drive and then come home at a certain hour, and let's say that curfew's 11 o'clock because I'm strict. So 11 o'clock comes and goes. 11.30 comes and goes. And we're waiting. What's going on, young man, young woman? And as they come in the door, we have pronounced guilty, late. It is what it is. There's no way to tell a different story at this point. Like, you're either late or you're not late, and they were late, and they missed curfew. But then, they start justifying themselves. They start telling us, well, you see, first the car broke down, and then we had to fix the car and get the tire changed, and then after that, we found some homeless person that we started helping. They start telling this amazing story, and let's say the whole story's true, and then all of a sudden, our disposition changes, our heart changes. And what I'm trying to tell you is that even in our English way that we use the word, see, I'm justifying the situation. The situation doesn't change. The guilt is still there. They're guilty. They were late. But because another story stepped in, another perspective on this lateness is now making the whole situation look a lot different from mom and dad, from thinking we're going to come down hard and grounded for forever. It's now, well, you should have called, or, oh, well, I'm so glad that you're okay, even though the car broke down. Oh, that's so great that you're helping out this person. That's, that's amazing. Do you see how that story, that narrative getting inserted in, justifies the whole situation of lateness? The problem is, is that you and I don't have a story to give to the judge. We have to get one from outside. We have to bring an advocate and a witness and a defendant who's going to come and say, here's, here's the story. And the story is that in the fullness of time, I, Jesus, was sent down to accomplish the mission to die for the sins of all the world, and I did it. I lived a perfect, righteous life, the life that nobody else lived, and I died on the cross for sinners. I rose again triumphant over death, and now I stand before you, judge of the universe, and these people are mine. And that justifies that story inserted in is satisfactory to the judge. And now we are declared, okay, not guilty, righteous, good to go. This, my friends, is the heart of the gospel. It is called justification by faith alone, apart from works. You cannot earn it. You can only receive it and believe it by faith. Faith is not a work. It is just a, I have nothing, give me everything, do you know why we read Psalm 143 earlier in the service? Because in Psalm 143 that was read to you, you have a man named David who is crying out, God, 
Come to my help and refuge. Hear my prayer. Give ear to my pleas. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. And then he makes this statement. For no one living is righteous before you. Many different commentators believe that in Galatians 2, Paul has that psalm and that phrase on his mind. A man desperate, pleading out. There's no one righteous, God. There's no one deserving of mercy. So God, just be merciful to me by faith. I'm clinging to your faithfulness. So as a church, we want to understand that this is the gospel. This is the gospel that we preach every week, that you can be not guilty because of the work of Jesus, not your works. This is what we talk about when we say gospel. We don't mean the first four books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are called the gospel according to, and then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So when we say gospel at embassy, more often than not, we are meaning this message You can be declared righteous by God by faith alone. And that's the very heart and core of it. And so therefore, as a church, we have decided we would like to center our church community, our lives, and our doctrine around this gospel, that this is the most important teaching in the Bible. All other things are not as important. This is hierarchical. It's it's top dog. It has first place. Other things need to be seen in light of justification by faith. So is that a justification by faith issue? No. Okay, well then it might be important, but it's not that important. We might be able to agree to disagree on that and still love each other. But if you deny the gospel, well then you're denying Christianity. You're denying Jesus Christ. Repentance is needed immediately. Removal from the church could be a consequence of denying justification by faith. As a church, let's make sure we understand what the gospel is, how to encourage people with it, how to not demand things in addition to the gospel, and talk about it a lot. Or as Martin Luther said, it is most necessary that we should know this article of justification very well, that we should teach it to others, and we should beat it into their heads continually, again and again. That's what you do every Sunday, is receive a beating A beating of the gospel into your works-driven head. No, it is by grace. Embrace it. That's what we do. We sing songs about his grace. We pray about his grace. We preach about his grace. Do you believe in his grace? Or is your life a wild roller coaster of ups and downs because you have no stability in the gospel of justification that you're declared righteous by God and it doesn't matter what else happens in your life? You are not who you are in your accomplishments or in your failures. This is why we sing songs like, When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. The ups and downs of the craziness of the evil and the suffering of this world. Can you say, it is well with my soul? Do you know how to say, it is well with my soul? My sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Embrace the grace. Point two, why? Because righteousness will not be found through works of the law. Look back at verses 15 
Now we're going to read through them again and then finish into verse 19. So verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. One of the first questions we need to answer to understand why righteousness is not gained by works of the law is we need to understand, well, what's works of the law? What does that even mean? And this has been a controversial phrase. Some have suggested that works of the law is only talking about the issue that you hear in Galatians, circumcision, dietary food laws, and Sabbath keeping. It's like the identity badge that makes you a Jew, the external markers of law keeping. However, if you read Galatians all the way through, and I don't think that these scholars have not, but as you study this issue, I think you'll see quite clearly, look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, and see what does Paul think works of the law is really about. For all who rely on, there's our phrase, works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The book of the law is what he means by work of works of the law. So what's the books of the law? The book of the law. It's the Old Testament. And that phrase can summarize even the whole Old Testament sometimes. So the law meaning the whole Old Testament. Most often it's referring to the first five books of the Old Testament. So when he says the book of the law, he's talking about the book of Moses. And there's a lot of laws in them. It's been added that there are 613 laws, and then there are several of them that are repeated in those first five books. And that summarizes the Jewish summary of what it looks like to live for God as a Jew. But does it look like in Galatians 3 that he's talking about only three or four of those laws or a certain category of them about external obedience? Or does Galatians 3.10 say, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written. All 613 of them are necessary for righteousness. And I'm going to go with the latter, that it seems like Paul is using works of the law to talk about all obedience to God's law in the Old Testament for a Jewish person. And his summary is you will not be made righteous by trying to obey circumcision, food laws, Sabbath, and every other law that is written. We will be cursed because we do not obey them. We will always fall short. We always have. Don't try it. Do away with the law. Die to the law. Strong language, isn't it? Be dead to the law, like I was dead to the law. I'm, I'm dead to it. It is not binding on me anymore. I am completely disassociating myself with that law as the means for me to be right with God. Now, we know that Paul doesn't completely throw the law out as like, well, it's no good anymore. Just take that part of the Bible and cut it out. Rip those pages out. All we need is the New Testament. That's not what he's saying when he says, I died to the law. He's saying, I died to the law in a salvific, salvation, righteousness sense. That, that sense, the law cannot do what it 
was hoping to potentially accomplish in saying, here, be righteous. Well, all it does is show that we're sinners. That's what the law does. So will abandoning God's law and saying, okay, I'm done with that law and embrace Jesus by faith then just lead people to live however they want and sin a whole bunch? And what's his answer in verse 17? Certainly not. Strongly, emphatically, no way. It's just the opposite, he says. Instead of doing away with the law leading to more sin and embracing Jesus by faith, doing away with the law actually leads to help you live for God the way God meant you to live. And in fact, if you go back and try and reinstate the law and say, let's embrace Jesus by his grace, and then let's also add the law. He says, that's actually being a transgressor. And that's what verse 18 is about. He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down. Now, what did Paul tear down? He tore down the argument that works of the law are necessary, and so he completely demolished it, said, no, that is not needed anymore, faith in Jesus. He fulfilled the law, obeyed it perfectly, in the fullness of time he came under the law, and that through the law, we could be righteous through Jesus. So embrace Jesus. And I'm tearing down the whole law system. So if we go back to the law system, then that's really sinning against God and denying the very grace God gave you, which is why verse 21, I think, is one of the keys. I'm not nullifying the grace of God. I am embracing the grace of God. And to nullify the grace of God and to go back to the law would be to say Christ didn't even die for anything. And he most certainly did. So we can't go back. It's got to be one or the other. Either you obey your way to God or you let Jesus take you there by his grace. You should realize as a Christian, for those of you that are Christians here today, it is so tempting for us to just go back to laws and legalism. I think all of us in this room, if we're honest with ourselves, we like the laws to like give ourselves pats on the back and feel good about ourselves. We often approach God on the basis of our performance. And if you don't think that's true, let me just give you a little example. How many of you might relate to this scenario? You wake up tomorrow morning. You miss your alarm, you hit the snooze button, and you oversleep. You don't get to have your quiet time and coffee. You're kind of grouchy as the day starts. You throw on some clothes, you get ready, you go to work or go to school or do whatever you're going to do on your Monday morning. As you're on your way, you get a flat tire. You end up late for work, and we just heard a sermon about how bad being late is, and now you feel so guilty and terrible. Oh, man, I knew I should have got that car checked and those tires rotated, and I didn't such a terrible person. And you go to work and you get in an argument with one of your co-workers at the water cooler and you're drinking something and you start arguing about something that was in the news and then they start talking about Jesus and you just kind of like step back and be like, all right, I don't want to get into the Jesus talk. And you completely just miss that whole opportunity. You come home, dinner's not made, you're really upset about that. The kids are all upset if you've got them, if you don't have them, whatever. Like you get the idea, it's a bad day, Right? And so you get to your bed at the end of the day and you start praying and you say, oh God, well, help me. I need a lot of help today. Help my friends, my coworkers for sure. In Jesus' name, amen. Then two weeks later, Monday morning rolls around. Oh, you wake up and the birds are chirping. The coffee's all ready to go. You set the timer. 
you have a quiet time like no other quiet time in the Bible. It is like the Shekinah glory of God comes down. Ah, you're happy, you're cheerful, you make it early to work, the boss notices this. Hey, how about a pay raise today? You've been doing such a good job at coming in on time, you're even early today. You end up sharing the gospel at the water cooler. You go home, dinner is ready, kids are obedient, you have family devotions. One of them says, Daddy, you know why I love you? Oh, because of how you teach us the Bible so faithfully. And then you bow down to pray at the end of the night, and your prayer sounds a little bit like this. Oh, gracious, eternal, merciful, magnificent, holy, majestic God, I come before you now thanking you for your abundant blessings and goodness. I want to pray for all of my co-workers by name, one by one, and for their salvation. May the seeds of the gospel that were planted today bear amazing good fruit. May our kids receive the goodness of what they received at dinner time. Thank you for watching over me. I pray now for every missionary I've ever thought of in my entire life. And prayer lasts until you finally fall asleep. Now, the only reason why some of you are laughing is because you know that there's some truth to this, don't you? Do you realize that you are nullifying the grace of God and you are saying that the cross means nothing? It accomplished nothing. If you cannot approach God on your worst days, dear God, not on the basis of my performance or my works, I come to you by the blood of Jesus Christ and I pray like I would pray on my best day. I know that your love for me, your acceptance of me, my relationship with you is not determined by how well I performed today. I know that it is only by the blood of Jesus. Is it hitting home yet? Are you realizing how hypocritical we are even in our daily Christian lives? How often we are tempted to be a legalist? How discouraged and depressed so many of us are because you're just not even believing the simple gospel. And so we desperately need this paragraph preached and beat into our heads. Embrace the grace because righteousness will not come through works of the law. It never has, it never will. Your accomplishments do not distinguish you for who you are and your failures, failures do not destroy you. Point three. We embrace the grace that has been provided from Jesus Christ, because it can't come through the works of the law. Righteousness won't. And Christ, he died for something. Now, what is that something? It's in our last two verses. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Leon Moore said, this is for me personally the most moving text in all of Scripture. Why? Because Christ died for something. What did he die for? He died for union with God, with Jesus Christ. 
Paul is speaking of what is one of the most magnificent teachings in all of the Bible. You, through Christ's death and resurrection, are united to Christ. You see that in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. There were four things that were nailed to the cross on that day when Jesus died. Do you know what they are? Number one, Jesus. Number two, a sign that read, Hail King of the Jews. Number three, Colossians 2 says, Your debt of sin. And number four, you. I was crucified with Christ. His death is my death. Paul's later going to talk about, and then his resurrection is my resurrection. His ascension to the right hand of the Father and having all authority over heaven and earth, I am now a co-heir and son and daughter of that glorious inheritance. This is in the perfect tense, a historical event with present implications. So I crucified with Christ and I continue to die with Christ. Every day I die as I look at the cross and hear it preached to me. The word with is a prefix that it sounds like the word synergy or sync, S-Y-N. You all ever sync in your phones and get them synced up with your computer? That's what this doctrine is. I and Christ, crucified, were synced. His death is my death. His resurrection is my resurrection. So when Jesus died 2,000 years ago and then three days later rose again, you got up with him. Meaning that your death in this earthly life is going to be tied to Christ's death and his resurrection, so you will not need to fear the grave if you're synced up with Jesus Christ by faith. This is why your accomplishments do not distinguish you. This is why your failures cannot destroy you. Because Christ's accomplishments are your accomplishments. Christ's lack of failures are now your lack of failures. That's the first thing we see, the unity that we have now with Jesus. The second thing is a new identity. I no longer live. The life I now live, new person, new identity, new creature. Paul does not mean that he has no more personality anymore, like, well, I'm just a completely different person. I used to be extroverted, and now I'm introverted. That's not what he's saying. He says, I have new status. I have new affection. I now hate my sin. I now embrace grace. I now love the cross. I now boast only in the cross. One of the best stories that illustrates this idea of new identity is from this guy named Augustine. So he was early church father. He was a bishop of Hippo, so that would have been in Africa. So this guy named Augustine is this prominent church leader, but before he becomes a prominent church leader. He is a wild, rebellious, crazy, living it up, had many different mistresses, if you get my point. So he comes to faith in Jesus, and all that changes. He, he no longer lives. He now lives for God, like we see here in this passage. And so one of his old mistresses come up to him and says, Augustine, Augustine, hey! Augustine pays no attention to her. He's a different person. He doesn't doesn't care about her. 
She's like, maybe he didn't hear me. Hey, Augustine, Augustine, hey, it's, it's I. Still doesn't listen. Eventually, she's like shouting, she's yelling, Augustine, it's, it's, it's me, it's me. He turns around, looks right at her and says, but it's not me. I'm a different person. It, it's not I, he says to her face. I'm not that Augustine anymore. New identity. New person from the inside out. How did Augustine have the power to do that? Because of the new power of Christ in us. Do you see that? We see Christ crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives. And then look at this preposition, in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory, Paul says in Colossians. Christianity is not about you taking a class and trying to live hard for Jesus. It is Christ living through you. Christ's power, his spirit working in and around you to change you to be a new person. It's like saying that marriage is about buying a house and putting food on the table and taking care of the deeds all around revolving having a family. That is not what a marriage is. Those of you that are in those kind of marriages realize, yeah, it's not very good. Marriage is about being united in a loving relationship with man and woman, and out of the overflow of that love, you take care of the deeds around the house. You put the food on the table. The union, the oneness of the relationship leads to the service to the other. So the Christian life is not about, well, let me take some classes and learn some things about how to live better as a Christian. No, it is about having union with Jesus, a new relationship, a new identity, and a new power that now flows out of you to live for God. As your object of worship changes in this new identity, you look at the one who loves you and gave himself for you. Do you realize that this is the only place in the entire Bible, as far as I'm aware, correct me if I'm wrong, where it says somebody in the first person, Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. It's the only time in the Bible. So you can, I think, say this. I think, in fact, you should say this. You should say the Son of God loved Phil, and the Son of God gave himself for Phil. He died for me. That's a biblical way to talk. Has it become personal? Has it become really deep down into your heart? That's the power of Christ in you. He died for me. Has that melted you ever? Even now, as you hear it again. We noticed earlier that the crucified with Christ was in perfect tense, past event, happening with continuing effects. This tense, Christ loved me. And gave himself for me. Past tense. That means he's not saying Christ loves us. That's true. Saying no. If you want to know if God still loves you now. Look back at the cross and see he loved you. It's not going to change. There's nothing that can change the historical reality of 2,000 years ago. Christ died and put in your blank for you. It can't, can't be changed. It happened. Past. Done. Complete. 
Nothing else to add to it, take away from it. So we as Christians should claim as our motto what we will find at the end of this book as we eventually get there in several weeks. Galatians 6, 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Boast in nothing else. Treasure nothing else. Make much of nothing else. Make very little of your perfect record your lack of perfection, your righteous account. The Spirit does not take his pupils. This is a quote I came across this week. The Spirit does not take his pupils beyond the cross. He only takes them more deeply into it. So we're not just trying to beat it in there and get it stuck. We're trying to break it down into your head, down into your heart, into the very core and the fiber of your DNA, that there is a God who has died for you, gave himself for you. Christ died for something, didn't he? If you're a Christian, you should never cease to meditate on the greatness of the cross and your salvation, and you should embrace grace every single day and extend it to others. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me encourage you, look to the Savior. Quit looking to yourself. If you keep looking to yourself, it leads to death. Those are works of death. And as the old hymn says, lay the deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet and stand before him gloriously complete. The gospel is finished. Do you believe it today? And is it shaping you? And are you seeing how it shapes our world if they would believe it? Puts us all flat. Equal playing field. Should not be hypocrites in the, in the church, but there are. And what we should say is, if you're one, there's room. There's room at the cross. There's room for one more today. Let's pray together.